You've got some notes in front of you. We're going to talk about theology proper today. The reason we call it theology proper is because the word theology is a study of God, but it covers everything, including all of the other ologies that you see up on the screen here. You can barely see it, but Christology, pneumatology, etc. So when it comes to talking about God, and specifically God the Father, we use the phrase, um, I actually use the phrase, theology proper. And so that's what we're talking about today. This week and next week, it's going to be about God in general, but... As we talk about that, think God the Father. These things will apply to all of the Trinity, but it's primarily God the Father, the the head, if you you want to speak that way, um, when it comes to the Trinity. So we're going to talk about that today. Now, we're going to talk primarily in terms of attributes, character traits. And there is no right or wrong way to break down the attributes of God. People categorize them in different ways. Some refer to them as mutable versus immutable, or I'm sorry, um, Attributes that transfer, say to us, or those that don't. So that's one way to to sort of categorize the attributes, meaning God has certain attributes that only he has, but then there's those attributes that he shares with us. So some people talk about God's attributes by breaking those down. Some of them talk about attributes in terms of transitive attributes or non-transitive, meaning attributes that have an object to work on. God sheds grace onto us. That might be one particular attribute that requires an object to work on it. But then you have something like omniscience. doesn't require us. God is still omniscient. And so there's no right way to break down attributes. And rather than go through all of these and give you the, all the terms and everything, I'm going to follow Millard Erickson on this. Millard Erickson is an individual I mentioned last week. Um, actually, two weeks ago, he wrote um, a three-volume theology series um, that's kind of been condensed now. You can buy it online for basically in a single volume, but he's still used in seminaries across the nation. He's considered to be probably one of the premier experts on systematic theology. He's not the only one. Um, Chuck Swindoll has a great um, theology book out as well. There's some others, but uh, Ryrie's got a great one out. But I like what Millard Erickson does. I don't agree with everything that he does. Um, for instance, I'm a young earth creationist. He's not, so I've got some disagreements with him. But I love the way he breaks down his systematic theology. And so I'm going to use his um, outline of sorts today. I'm not going to follow it verbatim, but he talks about God's attributes in terms of God's greatness versus God's goodness. And he breaks the attributes down into those two categories. So today we're going to talk about God's greatness. Next week we'll talk about God's goodness, and we're going to ferret out some of those attributes. So if you look at your outline... The first thing we're going to talk about today is God is spirit. God is spirit. means that God has no material form. He's not made of matter. I want you to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 20. And again, we're going to go kind of rapidly here. Some of these I'll just read and you can write down the citations. Others we'll read together. Obviously, if you read every single verse together, we'd be here till midnight. So... We're going to try to get as much information to you as we can. I'll read some of them and others will share. So we're going to share this first one, John chapter 4, verse 20. Jesus is meeting with the woman. He says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, or she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That was true. They would go to the temple. They would worship God at the temple. It doesn't mean they couldn't worship individually, but that's sort of the center of their worship. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. So we know that God is spirit. Now, I'm going to say something here that may get me into trouble, but hear me out as we go, as we will walk through it. The fact that God does not have material form does not mean that God does not have a physical appearance. Does that freak anybody out? The fact that God does not have a material form does not mean that he does not have a physical appearance. Let me give you a great example why. You all know what angels are, right? Do angels have a physical appearance? We see, we see them described in the Bible, don't we? As having a physical appearance. But are they material in form? No, they're not. So it's possible to have a physical appearance but not have a material form. Now, we know this is true for a number of reasons. Genesis chapter 1, when humans are created, it says that we are created in his image. Now, we're going to get to this a little bit later when we talk about anthropology, men, women, being created in God's image. 
But you know, the, the words that are used there, image and likeness, almost every single place those two words are used in the Bible, they refer to physical resemblance. I'm of the opinion that when we were created, something about our physical makeup is a physical resemblance to God. Now that may freak you out, that may sound heretical, but it's not. We don't think of that. We think of God having no form at all because he doesn't have material form. But when we look in the scriptures, he can be seen. Think about this. Jesus, we're told, saw the Father. John chapter 6, verse 46. Not, not that anyone has seen the Father, any human being has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. If Jesus were able to see God, there must be some type of physical representation. Moses actually got a glimpse of God. Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. Go ahead and turn there with me. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses wanted to see God's glory. Verse 18, chapter 33. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and I will show compassion to whom I show compassion. But he said, you cannot see what? You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. He's talking about men in their mortal state. Meaning no living human being can see God, see his face while he is still living in the flesh. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rocks. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the, in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see what? My back, but my face you shall not see. Now, some people write this off as simply personification. But there are a number of places in the scripture where God refers to his face. We are told that we will see him. Jesus sees him. Job said, even after my skin is destroyed, meaning after he dies, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. David actually wrote in Psalm, 1, or Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I will see your face. When? In Righteousness. He's talking about after his death. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Meaning in the presence of your likeness. Jesus even said this about us. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Do you remember what he said? They shall see God. Now some will write this off as simply sort of, will be, will recognize this presence or, or something about God. But, Reference after reference after reference in the scriptures indicates that God can be seen. God refers to himself in a way that indicates he can be seen. Which means there must be some physical representation of God. What exactly that is, no man knows. But at some point we will be able to look and to see some physical representation of God the Father. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I don't believe these are just personifications in the scripture. And again, we're going to study this a little bit more when it comes to um, anthropology. Because we're going to look at those words likeness and image and see how our own physical bodies in some form or fashion are representation of God. In fact, one of the ways that that gets ferreted out is Jesus himself, even in his pre-incarnate state. We know Jesus appeared in physical form in the Old Testament. They're called theophanies or Christophanies. He took on physical form just as a representation. This is pre-incarnate. But Jesus, even in his pre-incarnate state in heaven, before he ever appeared on earth, he's revealed to look like a man with a body. Looks like molten, fired bronze and gold and other things. There is something about human form, a face and other things, that somehow represents God. Now, that doesn't mean God has a face like us. I'm not saying that. But there is something about God that can be seen after we ultimately die. And we'll get that opportunity. But it isn't going to happen until then. Colossians 1.15 says that God is an invisible God. That means we cannot see him at this point. He is invisible to us, at least in a physical sense. In fact, again, John chapter 1 says, nobody, No man has ever seen him except for Jesus Christ himself. He's laid eyes on him, which makes sense. He's part of the Trinity. He's up in heaven was in heaven prior to coming here. 
But Moses was probably the closest. And even Moses, we're told in Exodus 33.20, God says, you cannot see my face and live. So what does God do? He puts him in the cleft of the rock, passes by in all of his glory, but takes his hand away for just a moment. Did Moses see something? That's what the Bible describes. He saw something. God refers to it as his back. I'm not saying God has a back like me, but there is something about him that can be seen, and Moses is the closest anybody has ever come to be able to see that and still live. Now, there are heavenly visions, but that's very different than what we're talking about here. So, God is spirit, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have some physical representation. Why is all this important to us? Many of the attributes we're going to talk about today are dependent upon God being spirit. Things like his his omnipresence, being able to be in all places at all times, requires that he be spirit. The second reason is that because he created us in his image, he also made us spiritual beings. Being made in God's image partly is that we are made spiritual beings like him. We're not just lumps of clay. We, We don't just have a physical body and then when we die, we turn to mud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made of flesh, but we are also made of spirit because we are made in God's image. And so the fact that God is spirit is important to us because it reminds us that as we are made in his likeness, we also are spirit. This is why we don't just exist in this life. The fact that we are able to exist eternally through Jesus Christ is all tied to the fact that God is spirit and he made us like him and therefore we are spirit as well. So, God is spirit is important to us for those reasons. Let's move on to another attribute of his greatness and it's this. God is personal. One aspect of God being personal is that he's not just he's not the uh, a force or an energy. Instead, he's a rational being with a mind, will, emotions, personality, intelligence. God is a person. That's one aspect of him being personal. There's another one we'll get to in a minute, but one aspect of God being personal is that he actually is a person. This is why the Bible refers to God using personal pronouns, like he, him, his. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 126 just briefly here. Genesis 1.26, you all know this verse. It's when God creates man. But notice, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image. Us there is plural. It's a reference, I believe, to the Trinity, which is another reason why we believe the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is a person. The Father is a person, the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person. Continually throughout the Scriptures, personal pronouns are used to refer to God. He's not some energy force. Not something you can find in a crystal. It's not some essence you can feel. He's a person. The Bible actually teaches that God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there was a heresy years ago called modalism, which basically taught that God, that God himself was, yes, three, but it was really three essences or three forms. There was one God who would take the form of a spirit. He would take the form of Jesus as a man. He would take the form of the Holy Spirit. That's something called modalism. That's not what we're talking about here. God the Father is three distinct persons in one God. We see that throughout the Bible. In fact, all three are mentioned as having a part in creation. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at just a few verses here, 1 and 2. What do we see in Genesis 1 and 2 when God first creates the heavens and the earth? Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's God the Father. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what? The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We see both God the Father and the Spirit active in creation. Jump to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at verse 16. We'll start at verse 15. He, meaning Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... By who? By him, by Christ, all things were created, both in heaven, heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been what? Created through him and for him. So just in these two verses alone, we've seen how all three parts 
of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were active and involved in creation. God the Spirit are mentioned throughout the Old Testament over and over and over. God is the most prominent member of the Godhead that we see throughout the Old Testament. But we also see the Spirit active in the Old Testament. But we even see Jesus himself appear in the Old Testament through, again, what are called Christophanies or Theophanies. I won't turn to a bunch of those, but anytime you see the angel of the Lord, most of the time when you see the phrase the angel of the Lord, not a, but the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most of those are the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in human form. Think of things like when Abraham saw the angel of the Lord, or Hagar, or when Jacob wrestled. Those are all examples of where we see all three members of the Godhead appear in the Old Testament. God oftentimes just talking, showing himself from heaven, the Holy Spirit being poured out on people. You know, when when the Spirit came down on Saul and he began to prophesy, it's an example of the Spirit found in the Old Testament. But then you find these theophanies. Sometimes you find God the Father speaking from heaven and you find Jesus on earth in human form and they exist at the same time. God the Father in heaven speaking, and then you've got the angel of the Lord on earth at that same time. And so you can see that they are two separate people, two separate persons. And again, it's a fascinating study. Years ago, I think it was when I was at Grace, I did a study of um, Christ in the book of Genesis. All the times Christ appeared in Genesis. It's fascinating, especially when you see both the Father in heaven speaking, and you've got Jesus on earth in human form. We also see all three of these at the same time in Jesus' baptism. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We started watching, Dustin mentioned it again last night. Um, Makes me just think of all the page turning here, but um, church people, a comedy. It's really fascinating. We watched about 30 minutes of it last night. Um, It's kind of a, uh, what do you want to call it, Dustin? It's like a... uh, mockery of what's happening in a lot of churches today with just all the bigger and better things they have to do. The, the pastor, and this is nuts, but one of the, the youth pastor, as he was talking to his group, he says, so turn in your phones to... I had a laugh, because they all did, you know. No more patient. Turn in your phones to... Oh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What do we see in that passage? We see all three parts of the Godhead. God the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus being in physical form here on the earth, being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending from heaven down upon Jesus. We see all three persons of the Godhead. This is why modalism doesn't work. God just sort of showing up in three different forms. He couldn't do it simultaneously like we see here at Jesus' baptism. Now here's what's interesting to me. We also see all three of these involved in aspects of our salvation. You ever think about that? That all three of the members of the Godhead are involved with our salvation. They're involved with our redemption. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, and we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. All three members of the Trinity are there involved with our salvation. God sending the Son... That's his involvement. He sent the Son. The Son dying on our behalf. That's his involvement. And then the Spirit being poured out on us, now indwelling us. All three members of the Godhead are involved with our redemption. We see the same thing when it comes to our sealing as Christians. S-E-A-L-I-N-G, not C-E-I-L-I-N-G. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anoints us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. What do we find there? This is talking about our sealing. What God does when we become saved is he puts his seal on us, he seals us. Our salvation is secure. We cannot lose it. And all three members of the God are involved with that. God, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ all mentioned here 
again, being involved with our sealing as Christians. One more I'll mention here is that the bestowing of the spiritual gifts on us. All three members of the Godhead are also involved with our spiritual gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, jump down to verse 4. Is that right? Well, I've got to go to 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There we go. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There we go with number two. There are varieties of facts, but the same God who works all things in all persons. All three members of the Godhead, all three persons, Paul mentions as he begins his discussion on the gifts. And so all three are involved with our redemption, our sealing, and the bestowing of spiritual gifts on us. So that's one aspect of God, is that he is a person. And all three members of the Godhead are persons individually. We say that they exist, all three in their own personhood, and they are all co-eternal with God, meaning that they have existed for all time, all the way to infinity past, and will continue to exist all the way into infinity future as three separate persons, but all together make up one God. kind of blows our mind in some degree. It's not an easy thing to explain, but it's one God in three distinct persons that coexist for all eternity. So that's one aspect of God being personal, is that he's a person, not some energy, not some force. Another aspect of God being personal is that he interacts with us in a personal way. If you look at somebody and say, boy, he's very personable, you're not usually meaning he's a person, he may be, but you mean that he interacts in a very personable way. Well, that's the way God is. And so the second aspect of God being a person is that he is personable. This is something that's revealed in the very few or very first book of the Bible. If you go back to Genesis with me, you notice that what we find is that as God creates Adam and Eve in verse 26 of chapter 1, he talks to them, he gives them commands. Elsewhere we see God talking to Adam and Eve, especially after their sins. But there's one really interesting, unique thing that we see, and that's Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, that just screams God's personability, if you will. It's an easy verse to overlook, but Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why would God be walking in physical form in the garden of Eden? Think he wanted to just look at the plants? I believe it's because Adam and Eve were there. God is a personable God. He created us to be in a relationship with him. And so what he does is he creates Adam and Eve and puts them into a garden and then probably in the pre-incarnate form of Christ shows up, physically manifests himself in that garden that Adam and Eve could lay eyes on him, can interact with him. And you'll see that what happens after this is when they discover, they hear God walking in the garden, they've sinned, they now feel ashamed, they hide themselves, but God then begins to discuss and to talk with them. He talks with each one of them, talks with Eve talks with Adam, even talks with the serpent. And so he's very personable. We see the same thing with this interaction with all kinds of people throughout the Old Testament. I've just come up with a quick list off the top of my head the other day. His interaction with Cain, he talks with Cain, he interacts with him, he talks with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Hagar, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, many of the prophets of the Old Testament, Mary and Joseph in the New Testament, some of the apostles like Peter, about Paul and others. All of these had these interactions with God that you and I can only imagine. Talking with him. In fact, the Bible says that Moses talked with God like a human face to face. Now, exactly what that means, most likely in that case, is that he could hear the voice and they could interact and they could just talk back and forth. We saw that with the burning bush. Did we not? God is personable. He interacts on a personal level. Throughout the Bible, God is portrayed as this deeply personal God who not only knows us, but wants to be known by us. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, jump down to verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. What are we supposed to boast in? That we know the Father. That we know God. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. That's a very personal thing, is it not? Justice, that's a very personal thing. And righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. 
God delights, we're told, in this passage by these personal things. Exercising loving kindness and justice and righteousness. Those are things that he bestows upon us. That's how he interacts with us. Every one of those things. And it says that he delights in those things. You know, it's interesting. John chapter 14, verse 16 says this. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus praying, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you will know him because he abides in you and you will be in him. If that is not the most amazing and significant thing about God's ability to be personal with us, the fact that he himself, in the form of the Spirit, takes up residence inside us. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. If that is not the most incredible thing about the God we serve, to take up residence in this tent, this filthy tent, if that doesn't scream God being a personal God. One of the ways that I came to Christ was through the four spiritual laws, and one of those laws was that God wanted to have a personal relationship. That spoke to me. I was raised in the, in the Catholic Church where I, I, I'm thankful for the things I learned, the, 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 the foundations I learned about Christ and God, but the one thing that was lacking for me was this idea that God is a personal God. In fact, Jesus himself told the apostles, you're my friends. Is that not an amazing thing? Get that from some energy force or some crystal, folks. That's not, that's not a personal God. So why is all this important to us? One reason comes down to the fact that because we're created in God's image, it means that we have a mind, a will, emotions. We're people because God is a personal God. He's a person, and therefore we are persons. Each one of us, we're not a collective. I used to love watching Star Trek. and The collective, you know. Well, the Borg, yeah, the collective, you know. You guys don't know what that is. But we're all independent, separate persons, just like the Godhead is, with unique gifts and abilities and personalities, our own mind, our own will, our own emotions. I think one of the greatest proofs that evolution is a joke is the fact that we're people with mind, wills, and emotions. How does that evolve from some primordial soup? It doesn't. It's something that God has given to us specifically by creating us in his image. And because he is a person, and because the Godhead is three individual persons, when he created mankind, he created people, and each one of us is a separate person. Another reason why it's important is because if God were not possible, were not personal, we could not know him, nor could he know us. The most precious gift God has made possible to us is to be able to know him. Had he created us, dropped us on this planet, and walked away, it's like deism. God's some mystical thing out there. Doesn't care. Just kind of sends you off on your own. Has no interaction with you, but what we have instead is a God who is personable. Think about this. Does God not have better things to do than to be concerned with us? He's the God of all creation. He can do what he wants. But his redemptive plan is all about us. From the beginning of Genesis, he created us to interact with us, to be personal with us. That's an amazing thing. And so understanding God as being a person and being personable is critical to us because it reminds us of who we are, but also that we have a God who is delighting to know us. Our greatest purpose, in fact, we'll get to this when we study anthropology, the Westminster Catechism, which is what's kind of behind Presbyterianism. It's a long document that's kind of like a statement of faith of sorts. I think it was done around uh, 3rd or 4th century but they wanted to codify what they believed about God and Christianity. And so they developed this document that is just question and answer. Question and answer. And the very first question that's on that document, which is still used today, especially within Presbyterianism, is what's the chief, chief purpose of man? Anybody know what the answer to that is? Yeah. It's ultimately the relationship with God. That's what it is. That's how they start their statement of faith, because that's who God is. And so that's the second attribute of God's greatness, is that he is a person. Third trait here, and this is going to sound a little strange, but God is alive, especially after all we've talked about. God is referred to repeatedly in the Bible. In fact, I found at least 20 locations where he's referred to as the living God. Now, most often that's really used to contrast himself with the fake idols that they would create. In fact, one of my favorite stories is when the idol's up on the shelf, and every morning when the priest comes in, he sees the idols knocked over on their face. It's like God's taking his little finger and going... 
You know, they're dead. They're lifeless. Well, that's not true with God. He is called the living God. Turn to Jeremiah again, chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to read a chunk of scripture here. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusions, because it is wood cut from the forest. The work of the hands of craftsmen cutting wood. They declare it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field they are. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm. Nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your greatness is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is, you, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you, but they are together stupid and foolish in their dis- discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought, or is bought from, or brought from Tarnish, or Tarshish. The gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman under the hands of the goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath and the earth, or at His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He was, He has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning from the rain. He brings about the wind from the storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery, and the time of their punishment, will they will perish. Go on and on. God is the living God, you're going to notice one thing here. Notice, he says in verse 14, just just make a mental note of this. And there is no breath in them. That's going to be critical in a second here. There's no breath in them. They're not alive. But there's something else we're going to see in this in just a second. Paul, when he was talking to the Thessalonians, when he wrote his letter to them, they were all pagans, they were all Gentiles that had come from pagan religions, worshipped idols, and Paul reminded them that they had, this is First Thessalonians 1, nine that they had, Turned from God, or turned to God from idols, and then he reminds them to serve a living and true God. There's a connection between this idea that God is alive and him being the true God. That's exactly what he was telling Jeremiah here. You've got all these fake gods, you have all these idols, and the one thing they all have in common, they're dead. They're chunks of wood, chunks of metal, there's no breath in them, they're dead. The contrast to the fake idols is that God is the true God because God is alive. He is living, he is active, and you can see him because of the things that he did and the things that he is doing. Now, God's not only alive, he has always been alive and will always be alive because he is eternal. Unlike all other life, ours included, God had no beginning and he has no end. Psalmist wrote in chapter 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Deuteronomy 34, chapter 27 says, The eternal God is your dwelling place. The underneath are his everla- and underneath are his everlasting arms. Job, probably one of the first books of the Bible written, says that the number of God's years is unsearchable. That's Job chapter 36, verse 26. The number of the Lord's years are unsearchable. Why? Because he is from eternity past, and he will be to eternal, eternity future. So the one thing about God being alive is that it demonstrates that he is the true God. Above all other fake gods, God is the true God because he is alive. Now, because he is alive, both our physical and our spiritual lives exist in him. Think about this. There would be no physical life if God had not created and given life to all things. That's just common sense, right? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5 says this, Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, get this, who gives breath to the people on it 
and spirit to those who walk into it. There's a wonderful word picture given in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I'll just read it. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Remember those dumb idols that had no breath in them? It didn't just mean that they're not alive, but they couldn't give life either. Only God can give life because life originates in God. And it's his breath that he breathes into us that makes it so that we have physical life and also spiritual life. Job again, Job chapter 27 verse 3 says that for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils. What is it that gives us life? It's the very breath of God, folks. It's supernatural. Again, we didn't evolve from some soup. It didn't happen from some spark of electricity. It's that God chose to take a portion of who he is, life, which exists only in him, and he then breathed it into us that we might live as well. So we have physical life because of him, but we also have spiritual life because of him. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, notice that, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, and he goes on. But basically, life originated, spiritual life, which is the context of John 5 here, also originates with the Father. You notice Jesus, before the night of his crucifixion, crucifixion, when he's praying, verse seven or John chapter seventeen, verse three says this: "This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's knowing God. It exists in Him." Romans chapter six, Paul says, "For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ our Lord." And so when the John writes that God, having life in himself, gave it to his son, who then gives it to us. Not only our physical lives, but our spiritual lives are a direct result of God being alive. If God were not alive, we would not be physically alive, we would not be spiritually alive. So I think it's pretty obvious why that's important to us then. We wouldn't exist physically if God was not alive. But more importantly, because God is alive, our life stem from him, including our spiritual lives. Plain and simple. That's who he is. God is alive, therefore we are physically and spiritually. Let's move on to another attribute of God's greatness. I think this is probably the fourth. God is infinite. What does that mean? When we're referring to God as being infinite, it's often described as him not only not being limited, or let me say it this way, not only being unlimited, but unlimitable. That's critical there. Meaning, God is not just unlimited, but he's unlimitable. He cannot be limited. means that can't prevent him from doing anything that he wants. It's generally described by using the three omnis of God. O-M-N-I. You'll see those in your notes. The three omnis of God refer to his infinite nature. The first one is God is omnipotent. Omnipotent. It means that he's all-powerful. He's infinite in his power. There is no end to his power. The very first thing the Bible reveals about God is this trait. What does he do? Genesis chapter 1. By his very words, God can speak into existence everything that exists. That's power. That's omnipotence. All he did was have to say, all he had to do was speak. Let there be, doink, there it is. Didn't have to lift a finger. At least with man, he decided to get down and kind of use his hands to form us, right? Didn't have to. But God is so powerful that he simply speaks something into existence. Because he is omnipotent, it also means that he's sovereign, means he's totally in complete control of everything. Never loses control. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. God wants to do it, he does it, whatever he pleases. Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I love Psalm chapter 2. The nations rage. They all put their armies together, you know, and it says that the Lord laughs and scoffs, just chuckles, you know. 
when you think about it, you know, you have it the, after the thousand year reign of Christ and Satan's let out of the abyss again, the nations kind of get all, you know, out of control again. They're going to, they haven't learned after 20, after a thousand years that they can't do anything to defeat Christ, right? And they all come up against him. It is a really fast war. Really fast. It's not long and drawn out, you know. It's just like that. God's patience has run out, you know. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar learned himself the hard way, and he finally declares, all the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. Now, you know who Nebuchadnezzar was? A wicked leader, brutal. Okay, got run of the world at that time. He learned very quickly that he can't thwart God. And so all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that that was true. Why is God's omnipotence so important to us? I'll just read this as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. But then get this. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God, his omnipotence. What assures us and guarantees us that we cannot and will not lose our salvation? God's omnipotence. It's deeply personal to us. We are saved. We will remain saved. We will always be saved because our salvation is protected by an omnipotent God. Let's move on to the next one, his omnipresence. Omnipresence refers to God being everywhere at all places at all times. It's, he's infinite in his presence. Sometimes they talk about God's um, omnipresence using two other words. His imminence, that's with an A, imminence. God is present everywhere in all of his creation. Another word is his transcendence, which means he's existing outside time and space. So sometimes you'll hear those words used. God's imminence, meaning he's present everywhere within his creation, and then his transcendence, he transcends nature, and he exists outside of time and space. We know that because he existed before creation. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 30, or 22 through 34, actually refers to both of those. I'll read that. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God that's far off, meaning he's present in his creation? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I don't see him, declares the Lord? Then he goes on, he says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? In other words, he exists everywhere. He is both transcendent and imminent. He's close, but he's also far above. What it means is that there's no place where God cannot hide, he cannot be found. David expressed this in Psalm 139. I'll let you read that on your own. But that's where he basically talks about he can't go anywhere without God being available and being around, being present within him. Another aspect of this idea of God's omniscience is that he's not bound by time or space. He existed before time. He will continue to exist now in this current time, but he will also exist after time, meaning for all eternity. He transcends time and space. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth or the world, from you were from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. David goes on and writes later in Psalm 93, Your throne is established from of old and from everlasting. So God is omnipresent. That's important to us because... God's always present everywhere we're at. We don't have to go seek and find him when he's right there. Let's move on to the last omni, the omnipresent, I'm sorry, the omniscience of God, which means that he's all-knowing, infinite in knowledge and wisdom. Some define omniscience as knowing everything about everything at all times. And that's probably a good way to say it. Psalm 147, verse 5 says it outright. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. Turn to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Let me read that again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This is what we call a chiastic structure. What Paul actually does here is he links God's wisdom and his knowledge to his actions, his judgments and unfathomable ways. 
Why is that important? Because when we think about God's omniscience, it isn't just knowing everything. It's that God exercises perfect wisdom as well. It's because he knows everything that his actions are perfect when they come to us. Because, you know, we we talk about knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing things. Wisdom is the practical application of that knowledge. That's wisdom, how to use what you know. And God is perfect in both of those. And his, his omniscience involves not just knowing everything, but in how he acts with that knowledge. And because he knows everything perfectly, all of his judgments, all of his ways are always perfect. He makes no mistakes at all. So it's not just that God knows everything, it's that when he acts on that knowledge, he's perfect in the way that he acts on it. His wisdom is perfect as well. You know, that trait is at the heart of God's justice. That's what makes him such a just God. That's what makes it so we can trust him. When God deals with us, he knows our heart exactly. You know, this explains why God can judge some and forgive others, why God can send some to the lake of fire, and why he sends some to paradise. Why is he perfect in how he does that? Because he knows what's in every man's heart. He knows everything perfectly. And then when he exercises it, he exercises it perfectly as well. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He watches the evil from the good. God is always paying attention. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah we've done a lot with today. Verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the... Iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty indeed. Why? Whose eyes are open to the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Meaning God, because he sees everything perfectly, can see into the heart of man. Nothing we do, say, or think can be hidden from him. He knows our deepest desires. He knows our deepest motives, which means he can judge us appropriately and can judge us fairly. No human judge can do that, can they? They can't see what's in the heart. They can only see the external evidences, but God sees everything because he's omniscient. So why is this important to us? One is that wisdom and knowledge actually come from God. We can be knowledgeable because God is knowledgeable. Proverbs 2, 6 and 7, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It's he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes, king, establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So why is it important for us that God be omniscient? Because that's where our wisdom comes from. What he tells us in here is something we can trust. It's something we can believe because he's omniscient. So one reason is that wisdom and knowledge come from God. Another reason it's important to us that God be omniscient is because his omniscience assures us that his judgment with us will always be right and just. Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We will all face judgment, folks. But you know what? We don't have to fear. Why? Because God knows what's in our heart. He knows our relationship with Christ. And because he knows that, and because we can know that he knows that, we have no fear. So when our time comes to be judged, we know that God will fulfill his promises to us, that those who are in Christ have nothing to fear. We may look and say, I don't know. God knows. The last thing we'll look at here is God is constant. We'll wrap it up with this. God is constant. The technical theological term for this is immutability. That's another big theological word, immutability. It means that God does not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I the Lord... Do not change. James wrote, this is James chapter 1, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Nothing changes about God. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same. You guys can finish that? Yesterday and today and forever. God does not change. Now, two other big words for you there. God's ways, um, the fact that he's immutable, does not change, is usually described as being both quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative and qualitative. What does that mean? Quantitative means it doesn't increase or decrease. In other words, God's attributes don't increase. He doesn't get smarter over time. He doesn't become more powerful over time. He has always been perfectly powerful, perfectly knowledgeable, 
That never changes about God. His characters, his attributes never increase or decrease. The older God gets, he doesn't gain another attribute. He's not like us. But supposedly get more wisdom and get more knowledge as we grow, that's not God. So quantitatively, God never changes. He is as awesome as he will ever be and has always been. Amen? But he also doesn't change qualitatively, meaning he doesn't change his mind, his purpose, or his ways. Okay? So not only does he not change himself, he doesn't change the way that he does things. We've seen that throughout the whole entire Bible with his redemptive plan. It has been the same plan from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through, and it'll be complete exactly as God designed it. Now, why is this important to us? Why is it important that God does not change? We'll wrap it up with these last few verses. One of the main reasons is that it's important to us because the Lord is reliable. I've talked with a woman at work who's struggling with her husband. He's unpredictable. Never knows what to expect, which means she walks on eggshells. That's hard to live with. Can you imagine living with a God that you didn't know from one day to the next what he was going to be like? God doesn't change because it gives us reliability, stability. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said he will not do it, or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? What Jeremiah, or or, I'm sorry, what Numbers is telling us there is that what God says he's going to do, he does. You can take it to the bank, so to speak. Psalm chapter 37 is all about this. One small portion of it, verses 4 and 5, say, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and then what? Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will do it. Why? Because he's reliable. He doesn't change. He makes a promise. He keeps it. In fact, our hope of salvation through Jesus Christ is contingent upon this one thing, God's immutability. Why is that? Well, he promised that all those who call on Jesus' name will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. If God promises us that and he doesn't change, you know, I decided, I, you know, the whole Jesus thing, I changed the rules of salvation now. God doesn't do that. He said this is the way it is, and he makes good on that promise. 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's precisely why Paul was so confident at the end of his life. What did he say? One of the last things Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why could Paul be so confident of that? Because God is immutable. He does not change. So because God is constant, because he doesn't change, we can have the same kind of confidence that Paul does knowing that our faith in Christ is enough to save us. Why? Because God said that's the way it is, and we know he does not change.